female in technology looking to reach the VP level and beyond? Join me, Lisa Kostova, and guests for honest and real tips, strategies, and conversation to accelerate and most importantly, enjoy your career climb today. Welcome, career climb members. It's great to have you. And I'm super excited to have Andrew Abramson from Riviera Partners joining us for our end of the year uh, market update. And super, super excited to check in with, with you, Andrew, because the market has been going bananas. And we want to hear what you're seeing. We want to see uh, some trends straight from the horse's mouth and, um, and, and, and take it take it from there. By way of introduction, for those of you who have not seen Andrew before in our community, Andrew Abramson is the partner in charge of the product practice at Riviera Partners. Riviera is, in my opinion, and the opinion of a lot of people in Silicon Valley, the premier executive search firm for tech companies. They filled the top roles at some of the iconic startups and growth companies and some of the public companies that have been around in the, over the last decade. So with that introduction, Andrew, I'll hand it right over to you. And my first question is, give us your sense of what is going on and how usual or unusual it is and some of the biggest trends you're seeing right now. Well, thank you for, for the patience here, everyone. And thank you for, for joining. So, um, Market update. It's been uh, the 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 craziest year that any of us in the recruiting industry can can remember in terms of how busy the market has been. I'm sure all of you have been feeling it in your inbox and in your emails every day with recruiter pings that are coming at you. Um, it's hard to know exactly what to attribute it to. I think there's a multitude of factors that probably play in here between um, you know. Up until the past few weeks, public companies and tech have been doing unbelievably well. And that then filters money down into the private company ecosystem. VCs are raising bigger and bigger funds. They need to deploy those funds. And so where do they deploy those funds? In startups. What do startups need to do once they raise, receive big funds from VCs? They need to hire. And so we at, at Riviera Partners, you know, we focus just on product and engineering recruiting. And we have had by far our most active year in the, in the history, the 20 year history of the firm. Uh, I think we'll end up having done double the amount of searches this year that we've done in our next closest year. And so, uh, you know, one of the, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago about the one of the hardest functions to recruit for right now is other recruiters. Because uh, so many companies are trying to staff up and scale. And so they need to hire recruiters. And so um, so it's just been a, a crazy year all around. And it's, you know, it's it's the uh, actually the, the polar opposite of 2020 when COVID hit, when it felt like there was never going to be another executive search again after every company, you know, was wondering what the future is going to look like and you know, are we going to survive? How should we think about our budget? Can we afford paying external recruiters to come recruit for our roles, et cetera? Um, and, you know, it's it's really kind of come back tenfold here in, in 2021 and, and hopefully it continues in, in 2022. So, yeah, it's been it's been a, a great year. And, um, you know, in terms of our product practice at Riviera, 
three or four years ago, we were doing, I think it was 80% engineering, 20% product. And now it's about 60% engineering, 40% product. And so we're just seeing huge growth in the, in the product practice. And that's, I think, in, in part because companies are just placing a bigger, bigger emphasis on having product be at the executive table and, um, you know, placing more and more value on, on these roles and, uh, and, and all of that. So, uh, the trends definitely point to product becoming an even more prominent role here at the C-suite. Um, you're seeing a number of CEOs who get promoted who come from the product track as well, whether it's Upwork or LinkedIn or Instagram or just many others that, that we can point to who, um, you know, who CEOs who have the product skill set. And so, yeah, so so overall, it's just been a, a, a strong year and, and hoping for continued growth in, in 2022. I hope you're asking for a raise amongst all amongst all of this, Andrew. <laughs> if you were part of our executive development program, we would be on your case right now to have that next conversation. Tongue in cheek here. So, okay, so there's more companies raising capital. There's more job openings, I assume, across the board. But given the startup environment, I assume it looks like first product person in needs to develop and build the whole team. So needs to be able to kind of dip on the tactical level and then quickly scale that team. Can you describe the type of people that they're looking for? Like if you had to pick the ideal, the ideal profile of a person that these new roles are looking for, what would that person look like? What type of experience would they have? How would they present themselves? Yeah. Um, so you're talking about an early stage startup, like PM number one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, good question. So yeah. And, and so the, the majority, just for, for everyone's knowledge. So in terms of the companies that we work with that, where we place VPs or CPOs of, of product, um, the, the majority of the companies that we work with are venture backed, rapidly scaling companies. We do some public company work. So this past year, I placed the chief product officers at, at HubSpot, uh, DoorDash, uh, PagerDuty, Upwork. Um, but you know, the majority of the work that we do is at is at early stage companies. And so, you know, a big trend <coughs> that we're seeing in the market right now, as it pertains to early stage companies, is that these companies at Series A, Series B they're raising bigger and bigger amounts of capital at each round. And so oftentimes what that can do is kind of delude the founders into thinking that, oh, because I raised a $40 million Series A, that I should be able to attract a more senior profile. But the reality is that the product work that needs to be done really remains the same, whether it's, you know, they've raised $40 million or they've raised $5 million. If they have the same amount of traction, then there's the same amount of product work that actually needs to get done. And so part of my job is to help reset and level set founders expectations in terms of the seniority of the people they, that they should be attracting. And the way that I always tell founders to think about it when you're hiring your first head of product at Series A is you really need to think about it on a 24 month type basis, right? Like you're not going to hire your head of product that you hire at Series A is not going to be the head of product who takes you through your IPO 10 years later. It's just a different skill set and a different level of experience. And so at an early stage, the skill set 
that companies really need in their product managers is they need product people who are really scrappy, who are not afraid to roll up their sleeves, who can get into the weeds and really execute at a very high level, who can kind of put processes in place to allow for more predictable product releases, product development, who can put the right kind of customer listening functions in place, who can understand, okay, how do we balance customer requests and feedback and feature requests that our customers are asking us for versus investing in features that are going to benefit a longer tail of customers and someone who can understand how you make those trade-offs and how you put the processes in place to make those determinations. Because at an early stage, you know, founders are probably the ones who are the product managers at that point, and they might have found success with a single product and a couple customers to be able to get to a million dollars in revenue, maybe a little bit beyond that. But when they're looking to bring on someone externally like you, they're really looking for someone who they can hand off a lot of that work to and can really help um, add more velocity, add more scale, and um, and ultimately add more process to to allow the company to scale. Great. So then extrapolating from what you said, does that mean that now with more companies opening up product roles with earlier and earlier stage companies looking for product, that first product person, does that mean then that there, there should be at least by the looks of it, maybe you can confirm or deny that, but are we also seeing an expansion of this second in command type of opportunities like a director, senior director um, to come in perhaps you know, whereas like five, 10 years ago, they would have needed that like scrappy one person. Now they have a small team and they need someone to come in to kind of run point or on the team while, you know, the head of product scales. What are you seeing for that kind of directorship level roles? Are you seeing an increase in them? And where is the increase coming? Which type of companies? Definitely. Yeah, there's definitely an increase in those roles earlier on because companies are just raising more money earlier on. And so they have more funds to be able to hire more people. So, uh, yes. So, yeah, I mean, we, we get asked all the time at like Series A to, to hire not just a head of product, but to also find that person's number two as well. And that's very rare. Uh, or it used to be rare a few years ago. It's not as, as rare anymore. Um, and it's really across all domains. It's not a particular domain that, uh, that I would say is like hiring more product people than not. What I would say is that in consumer, uh, you typically see a founder be far more opinionated about product, um, and ultimately like run product a little bit longer into a company's life cycle. Whereas in B2B, oftentimes it could be an engineer who was the founder of the company uh, and, and really doesn't know that much about the fundamentals of product and is really looking to offload a lot of the product work and might not be particularly opinionated about product. Um, and so that's the biggest difference that I would say between consumer and B2B is consumer, you just tend to have founders who uh, are more in the weeds when it comes to product and, and product development. Uh, at, whereas B2B, they, they tend to want to offload kind of strategy and vision to an external head of product hire. So. Okay. If you put yourself in the shoes of a person who's in their mid-career, a product person, now all of a sudden there's a 
much bigger number, much larger number of options available. They can either go and become the first kind of product person at a super early stage company and then grow the the, the team. But now there's another option on the menu and that is like going into a slightly later stage startup and joining in as a senior person but not the first kind of boots on the ground person. Can you walk us through your line of thinking, how you would think about the trade-offs between those two options? And what would you look at in terms of the company? Or, or is that even a choice? Do you just look at the company and being like, this is a bus that's going places. I want to, I want a spot on the bus. I don't care what it is. Or is there an important thought process that you would recommend for debating at what stage to join and how to position oneself best for growth. Yeah. Yeah. So the way that I, and I I have this conversation with, with PMs all the time is, is the way to kind of think about that is to think about, start with your end goal and work backwards from there in terms of your career. Do I want to be a public company chief product officer? Do I want to be a founder? Do I want to be a CEO? Am I optimizing for cash flow in the short term? Am I optimizing for upside in the long term? There's just a lot of different things that you can potentially be optimizing for and working towards. So there's not like a one size fits all piece of advice here. What I can tell each and every one of you is as an executive recruiter, there's definitely certain things that stand out and can detract from people's profiles and backgrounds and experiences that are a bit more one size fits all. (coughs) Something that is a universal truth when it comes to recruiting executives in product is that the way that any executive search works is that I or, you know, executive recruiter X sits down with the founder if they're looking for a head of product or sits down with the chief product officer if they're looking for a number two. And we say, okay, What companies do we want to recruit from? What companies do you really respect? What products do you really admire? And that's where it all kind of starts is working backwards from the company, right? And so what that means for each one of you is that associating yourselves with companies that are highly respected from a product development standpoint, from a growth standpoint, from a trajectory standpoint, that is never a bad thing to do, right? Like, If you're choosing between going to Stripe as an IC or going to, you know, um, you know, Hewlett Packard as, you know, as, and, and owning a team of, of 30 people with, with your ultimate goal of, um, you know, becoming a, a a head of product at a super high growth company, you want to probably associate yourself more with the brand that you think and the product that you think is going to be more well-respected and regarded by other high-growth companies, right? And so that's obviously going to be straight. So um, so that's kind of one universal truth is that the way these searches work is they start off with the companies and say, okay, who are the product people at those companies? Can we get them? What are their backgrounds, et cetera, right? Um, on the flip side to that, another universal truth is that The surest way of kind of stalling your career or inhibiting your career momentum or your chances of getting executive roles is any sort of perception of jumpiness in your career. And jumpiness means really a stint at a company that's like one and a half years or less. Now, everyone gets 
one of those, you know, or, or, or you know, really like over the course of a 20 year career, you can have two of those, but you don't want them back to back. Right. And if you have a few of them, then it really, really becomes harmful because it's really hard to make an impact, a deep impact in product in, in under one and a half years, if not two years. Right. And so if you have, you know, three straight one year stints, it's going to be hard to, you know, when, when, when you're talking to recruiters or, or people at, at a company that you want to join and point to, okay, I was able to make this massive impact at this company, but I was only there for a year and then I left. And then I went to this other company and I was only there for a year and then I left. Right. And so <clears throat> if you're if you're thinking about leaving and you've only been at a company for a year, year and a half or so, y- you just really need to be careful about that. And, and you need to put a lot of thought and time into making sure that you're going to join a situation where you just have a high degree of confidence that you're going to be able to be there for three to four years after that. It just puts a lot of pressure on your next stint to go really, really well if you're going to leave somewhere after a year and a half or less. And so that's another universal truth is just don't, you don't want to jump around um, because that will hurt your, your career momentum. Um, You know, the, the other thing that I would say is uh, from a, you know, a leadership standpoint, there's really not a huge difference between managing a team of five PMs versus managing a team of 10, Um, you know, like you're probably going to be managing through a manager anyways. And so don't over-index too heavily on team size. I think you want to make sure that you're, if, if your goal is to continue to kind of move up the, 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 the career ladder and become a head of product, you obviously need to show that you can manage other PMs and ideally that you can manage through managers. But don't index too heavily on just kind of raw work size or team size and let the quality of the company um, you know, not become a, a really big factor in terms of what you're considering. In terms of what you're seeing and the trends and the increase in opportunities and the and uh and the demand for product talent, what are you seeing in terms of compensation? And I would love for you to talk about two aspects of compensation. Um, a how is cash comp move, moving significantly? compared to end of last year, or is the compensation going up in other components of it, like more equity or one of bonuses? I've heard some stories around like, you know, like a sign on bonus being super, super high or juicy. Yeah, well, let's, let's actually start with that. So how is comp behaving? Are we talking about huge increase and is it across the board or is it concentrated in specific industries or roles and what part of comp are going up? Yeah, good question. So to be clear, I'm pretty focused on exec search, right? And so I can't, I don't have a ton of, of insight or knowledge into where comp bans, how that's changed at kind of the IC PM level or even really the, the group product manager level. Like it's just not really in my, in my wheelhouse. But in terms of exec level compensation, um, I can say that I have seen equity offers become more substantial this year as, as, as companies are fighting for talent and candidates have multiple offers. I've just seen that the anecdotally candidates having much more leverage this time around. And so because of that, the offers have had to increase. And um, and that's that's both reflective of, of equity and I've seen base salaries kind of creep up as well. 
it's so circumstantial and individual to each particular company and situation. I think like if I was to look at the trends of just the the market overall and the percentiles, it, it's probably been a, a slight increase between this year and last year, but it's not like you know, the average base salary for a head of product at Series A is double this year than what it was last year. Like, that's not the case. You know, it's still, it's still, you know, maybe like a 10, 15% increase, but it, it's nothing that is, is like super dramatic I, that I've seen from a cash standpoint. And have you seen the leverage of candidates increase with respect to understanding the valuation of the company? So it's great that they're throwing a bunch of equity at you, but... Um, how much is that equity worth? I, in the past, have had a really hard time getting companies to disclose percentage that they're granting of equity, because then you can back into the valuation, you can understand a lot, and they're revealing all of their cards. So companies in the past have not been willing to disclose as much of that. And then the other the other thing that that does is by knowing the percentage of equity, you can benchmark yourself, because all of the benchmarks that you know, recruiters and now our community has access to have equity as percentage of company size or like, yeah, of, of a company value. Have you seen any movement on that? So again, I'm speaking from the lens of, of exec level search here. Uh, but, but in my experience, I would be very, very hesitant to join a company that was not being open and forthright about their valuation. I mean, most, most, capital raises these days, like there's a TechCrunch article about it and you can, you know, they, they have public valuations that are out there. Right. And so, um, you know, and, and by the way, if any of you have offers at companies and they're refusing to disclose what their valuation is, you can always ping me and I can see if I can find out for you. Uh, but I, I like that, that's just not a great, that's not a great look for a company to not reveal their their valuation when they're recruiting because it's obviously a fundamental part of the compensation that they're offering to you. And you know, if they're going to be tight-lipped around their valuation, then that means they're probably trying to hide something and that's that's not good. Uh and so I, I that would be a flag. That would be a really big flag for me. I've never done an exec level search where they didn't tell the candidate what the valuation of the company was. You know, again, that's at the exec level. That's not at the, you know, the, the PM level necessarily, but that would just be a, a major flag for me. And I would, it, I would, I would caution any company to be pretty forthright around that when you're recruiting. That's how you're going to get the best people is by being open and honest. I, I want to clarify because it's actually not just the valuation of the company, which is more readily available, but the combination of that piece of data with the shares outstanding, because all you're trying to understand is what the shares they're giving you are worth, not just in current value dollars, but what they are as percentage of the company, because all of the benchmarks um, have and and we're we can talk about a huge piece of leverage here if they disclose the percentage of the equity pool that you are getting and it's nowhere near the level that they're hiring you to that's a huge negotiation piece that can you know be worth hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars one day so those the combination of those two pieces or the outright percentage of equity you're getting has been hard to cut by in the past so I'm wondering if that's now more readily available. Yeah, that one. So in terms of the amount of shares outstanding, um, I mean, again, speaking from the lens of, of an exec recruiter, 
that always kind of factors into the math that's being done. And, and the founder is t- tends to be pretty forthright around that at, at offer stage, right? That might not be something that you ask like at the first interview, but when you're doing an offer and there's an offer calculator and the founder has a whole spreadsheet of like, you know, if we, if we hit these benchmarks, here's what your equity, equity will be worth. Here are shares outstanding, et cetera. Usually that is pretty readily available. So again, I just think it's, yeah, I, I would just be a little reticent with with companies who are not going to be forthright around that at offer stage. I think, you know, asking valuation early on in the process is fine and they should reveal that. And if they don't, then that's a red flag. At offer stage, you should be able to ask for shares outstanding if they're giving you a, a, a decent equity offer. Um, and if they don't reveal that, like that's, again, I, I would just, I, I would have some trepidation there. Thanks, Andrew. Are there any industry trends? Are we still talking about fintech and healthcare being super hot or is there some new trend that's emerging? What about crypto and NFT and the whole the whole ecosystem around that? Yeah. 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 I mean, that's definitely a trend. Everyone just all you need to do is go onto Twitter or anything. And that's all you see anyone talking about is Web 3.0. It's still super early. And, you know, a lot of people don't even really know what it means yet. And um, you know, it's obviously really hot. We, we're doing some work in that space, um, you know, with companies like OpenSea and um, Chainalysis or some companies in that world that we're doing some work with. Um, you know, yeah, it's hot right now. Is it the next pets.com? I, I don't know. Webvan, it's hard, it's hard to say if it's going to be kind of here to stay or not. People certainly seem to think that it is. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's definitely a trend. Um, there are certainly more and more people that want to get into it. And it's becoming very, very competitive on those searches because you're seeing people from all different industries who say, I want to get into Web 3.0. I want to get into crypto. And, you know, what's what's interesting about Web 3.0 is that no one actually has experience in Web 3.0, right? And so, you know, whereas if I was doing a search at, at Airbnb, you know, you look for someone with marketplace experience, right? Uh, if I was doing a search for Slack, you look for someone with SaaS experience. But if you're doing a search for a Web 3.0 company, well, no one really has that experience yet. And so you're seeing people from a lot of different industries be able to get into Web 3.0 if you have the passion and the learning agility and um, and whatnot. And so I think Web 3.0 is actually a really good place for people to, to make a domain switch too, because you're not going to be competing against other people who have a ton of domain experience there. And so if you are looking to get into a net new, net new domain, crypto, blockchain, you know, NFT, all that kind of stuff, like there could be opportunities for people who are looking to switch, switch careers. Makes sense, right? If they, if the investors threw tens of millions of dollars at them with no prior experience, then they might take a chance on. <laughs> A salary with no prior experience, too. It goes both ways, right? That is so interesting. I love that. Thank you so much, Andrew, for giving us this amazing update. And uh, yeah, uh, wishing you a great new year and fantastic, you know, business and success in 2022. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, send to a friend, leave a review, and connect with me on social media. The best way to connect is to register for the next free Product VP Challenge at www.productvp.com.
vpchallenge.com. Until next time, keep climbing and keep enjoying the climb.